If you have your Bibles with you on a tablet or phone or in front of you in paper form, you can turn to John 4. And we will be looking at this passage today. I remember when I first met Caleb Friesen. Caleb is John Friesen's son who runs NBC. At the time, he was running Fair Havens. And I remember preaching at Fair Havens. I looked at the back of the room, and there was this young man, 14 or 15 years of age, all dressed goth-like, all in black, black nails, just black. And my heart just went out for him. I tried to connect with him that week, and to no avail. He wouldn't talk to me. And so I just began to pray for him and ask that the Lord might open a door into his life. And the next year, when I was back at Fair Havens, uh, he was open to some conversation, and a friendship struck up. And I walked alongside of Caleb for a number of years sharing the gospel with him. I'd go to Toronto when he was in film school. We had art crawls in Hamilton. You know about that. He would come and stay at our house for the weekend. We'd go to art crawls. I'd go up to NBC for a pastor's conference or to speak, and I'd go out with Caleb. And I remember being subjected, is that the right word, to Devin Townsend. And one time Caleb and I are going to Huntsville. We're there, we're talking, you know, have some food. We're driving back. And he's like, you know, I'm trying to understand the meaning of life. And I think Devin Townsend knows it. Can you listen to some of his stuff? I'm like, sure. He's a musician. So he puts on a song that's about Ziltoid, the sock puppet warrior, that's in search for the ultimate cup of coffee. And Ziltoid can't find the ultimate cup of coffee when he comes to Earth. And so he sends his warriors to destroy the planet. And the song is 55 zero minutes long. That song. I can't get that time back ever. It's just gone. So I was back a few weeks later in, in uh, Huntsville. I was speaking, and he's like, we went to Huntsville, and back on the way back, he's like, I've got another song. And I just remember praying, Lord, help me. Be with me right now. Like, and it was about another alien that was coming who's trying to discover the meaning of life, and he discovers it's a cheeseburger, but he's a vegetarian. And that song was 70 minutes long. 7-0. We drove along. Amy, I remember coming back. She's like, where were you? I said, listening to something you should never have to hear ever. Never have to hear ever. But there were dark moments in that young man's life. Depressed. Addiction. Struggle. And he was convinced that God could never love him. God could never love him. Alonzo Paul grew up in a casual Catholic family in Calgary. They were the Christmas Easter kind of Christians. And at 12 years old, his parents divorced. Spiraled him to a state of depression, and as he was spiraled into that state, he looked for friends. And he found the wrong group of friends and quickly became addicted to pot and to alcohol. By 18, was addicted to oxy started his own clothing store, you know, a hip-hop clothing store in Calgary, but would just sit and do rails or lines as the store would open, and he'd have the drugs all out in front of him. And he was lost in a mess. I mean, he tells the story of waking up to one of his friends trying to kill him because his friend was having a schizophrenic episode, and he woke up to a knife in his neck being punctured. Got to the hospital and just felt like he was lost. Nicodemus believes he's good enough for God. 
The woman at the well is convinced she's beyond the grip of grace, that God will want nothing to do with her. John 4, verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who was uh, baptizing, who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. He's growing in popularity, but also growing in controversy. The Pharisees are opposing him. Jesus hears that they know that he's gaining this popularity, that his disciples who are baptizing on his behalf are now baptizing larger numbers of people. And so Jesus says, we're just going to get out of here for a while and head back to Galilee. Now, verse 4, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sakar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Just pause there. The text says they had to go through. This is likely more of a harvest comment than a geographic comment. Although some would say many Jews would go around Samaria, which could be true. The historian Josephus talked about how many Jews did choose to go through Samaria. You'd go through as quickly as you could because the Samaritans and the Jewish people were enemies. Jacob gives a blessing to Joseph. You see that in Genesis. And as part of the settlement of the land, this is where we are. We're at the well that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. It's about noon. Most women would come to the well in groups. They'd talk, camaraderie, help each other out. She came alone by herself. The other women would typically come early morning. She came midday when it was hot to avoid the other women. And she's a Samaritan. Who are the Samaritans? Well, if you know your Bible history at all, when the Babylonians came, that's the time of Jeremiah, and conquered the southern kingdom, they took those people into exile. The Assyrians are the group that come before the Babylonians, day of Isaiah. So the Assyrians come before the Babylonians, but they don't take God's people into exile. They just occupy the land. They come into the northern kingdom. They occupy the land. They're there. But they take some of the best and brightest men out of Assyria, or out of, sorry, the northern kingdom, back to Assyria. And of course, those men have no one to marry but Assyrians. And those people, the Samaritans, are the half-breeds that are half-Jewish, half-Assyrian. So their religion's kind of all mixed up. Their belief system's all mixed up. And Jews were only to marry Jews, so their families are all mixed up. And so the Jews hated Samaritans. The Jews couldn't stand them. In fact, in 400 BC, on Mount Gerizim, the Samaritans built a temple to be like the temple in Jerusalem. It was destroyed in the second century BC, but it lasted a couple of hundred years. And that temple was to kind of mimic the temple of God 
that the Jews worshiped God in in Jerusalem. The woman's a bit struck. He's a man. She's a woman. He's a Jew. She's a Samaritan. And he asks her for help. Jesus answers her. Verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his son and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and not have to keep coming to draw water. Jesus is there and he says, what I have for you is something very different than what you think. If you knew who I was, if you recognized me, if you understood who you were talking to, you would actually have asked me for living water. Living water. Note, she talks about the well. She refers to Jacob. She calls Jacob father. Father Jacob. In fact, it's interesting if you read through Genesis and you read about the patriarchs, it's always Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not Joseph. Some people think, well, Joseph's the main character there in Genesis. No, it's always Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You read in the Psalms. You read in the prophets. It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the patriarchs of the faith. And so she talks about Jacob being the father of their people. Jesus offers her water of which she'll never thirst again if she drinks. And she wants it. She doesn't want to keep coming back to the well. She doesn't want to be ostracized. She'd rather be huddled in her place by herself. You see, everyone is searching for something. They want to be satisfied either by their career, education, a relationship, a home, a cottage, a hobby. I mean, some people even lose themselves in virtual realities. And as AI gains prominence, people are theorizing that one day you won't come to worship. You'll just send a hologram of yourself. Now, you might think that's impossible, but I literally have now sat in meetings where I'm sitting in a meeting and an AI bot takes the minutes of the meeting. It knows who's speaking. It, it, it records the minutes word for word. It then summarizes the meeting, minute, uh, meeting minutes for you and, and gives them to you. Watch out, administrative help. Um, it's shocking. They're, they're talking about how one day people like me won't be needed because they'll be able to develop pastors who have some charisma, the ability to tell a story, interpret scripture, explain it, and you'll just watch a hologram on stage. I mean, people lose themselves today in virtual realities. They strap on a set of headphones and just gone for hours. Everybody's searching to be satisfied in some way. And Jesus offers her living water. You see it with our young people. Jean Twenge, prior to the pandemic, wrote a book called iGen. She's written one now called Generation. She's not a believer. But this book is worth getting if you're a parent or grand book, grandparent. iGen. She writes about what it's like for a generation who's grown up and does not have a memory of not having one of these in their hand. 
What has it done to them? This is what she says. Teens are at the forefront of the worst mental health crisis in decades. This is written in 2017, pre-pandemic, with rates of teen depression and suicide rocketing since 2011. She says this as well, a stunning 31% more 8th and 10th graders felt lonely in 2015 than in 2011, along with 22% of 12th graders. What's this woman saying? Jesus, if you have living water, of which I'll never thirst again, give it to me. I don't want to come to the well anymore. She thinks that her need is not coming to draw water. But her need is so much deeper than that. Her need is so much greater than that. So Jesus says to her, go and call your husband and come back. I imagine in this moment she just bowed her head, ashamed. She says, I have no husband. Jesus said, you're right when you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Now, some people think, is Jesus being cruel here? Is he being mean? Not in any way. He's pointing out her need. This woman is desperate. You see, in those days, a woman could never divorce her husband. So these first five men have either died or divorced her. They've all left her. They've all abandoned her. They've all walked away from her because she couldn't walk away from them. We don't know what part she played in that. Scripture doesn't tell us. But she comes at noon because she doesn't want the other women to, walk, to mock her and laugh at her. She comes in the heat of the day because she doesn't want to be the gossip of the town. In fact, the man she's living with, she won't even marry. She just lives with them. In those days, that was unheard of. Because she's been through five husbands and doesn't want the pain of another one leaving her again. She doesn't want that. And so she feels like she doesn't belong anywhere. It's just not safe. A few years ago, I was in the basement of my home and I heard this loud screeching sound coming from the bathroom. And I went running because I thought someone had lost an arm. But they hadn't. There was a bug. It was a big bug, one of those centipede-like things that when you squish just evaporates, and, and it ran under the trim and into the wall. And I said, well, it's gone. And I remember my daughter saying to me, like, well, where'd it go? And I said, well, it's in the wall. And so she said, well, this bathroom isn't safe because it could come out of the bathroom any time. And I said, oh, no. I said, that bug could come out in your bedroom. It could come out in my bedroom. It could come out in the kitchen. It just crawls behind the walls. And all of a sudden, I look at my daughter, and she has a look of horror on her face. And she says, then it's not safe anywhere. That's how the woman at the well feels. They're just going to talk about me. They're just going to mock me. They're just going to abandon me. They're just going to make fun of me. Another man's just going to leave me. It's not safe anywhere. It's not safe anywhere. Our young people can feel that way. One of the great poets of our day, Sean Mendez, writes this. <laughs> Laying on the bathroom floor, feeling nothing. I'm overwhelmed and insecure. Give me something I could take to ease my mind slowly. Just have a drink and you'll feel better. Just take her home and you'll feel better. 
keep telling me that it gets better? Does it ever? Help me. Help me. Help me. This is a suicide note of a young 17-year-old man lost in a world of darkness without a guiding light, seeking a friend to help my struggling, failing plight. Now all of you good people just go on passing by, leaving me with nothing but this lonely will to die. Somewhere in this lonely world of sorrow and of woe, there's a place for me to hide, but where I do not know. For no matter where I go, I never will escape the devil's reaching, clutching hands or the drink of fermented grape. So out of my grief and anguish, perhaps some wandering boy will see long after I have left this world and build his own life strong and good and free. I remember meeting with a young man who came to our programs for a number of years. He joined the Hells Angels like his father in our city. I saw some of them last week because I'm at a wedding where a group of them will be this Friday night. And he was in a broken place. And I told him the hope we have in Christ. And he looked at me and he said, God would never want me. God would never want me. Alonzo from Calgary was in that very low point. Gone in a haze of drugs. And his sister came to faith in Christ. God saved her. He said, I saw the difference. She had a joy I could not explain, a peace that was incomprehensible. She had hope. And she came to me talking to me about this hope, about Jesus and what he had done for her, inviting me to come, inviting me to be a part of it, asking me to come to church. And I said, I could never go there. I hate my life now. Going to church will only make it worse. I remember John Friesen and I talking to Caleb Friesen on a number of occasions, pointing him to Christ. And at one point he looked at me and he said, I can't believe he would ever want me. You see, for many, the gospel just feels too good to be true. What do you mean all I have to do is believe? What do you mean all I have to do is turn from whatever it is I've trusted in, turn from whatever it is I've believed in, and turn to Jesus? What do you mean he doesn't turn people away? It just seems too good to be true. And the second thing they wrestle with is this. Will it really satisfy? Will the gospel actually deliver on what it promises? Is Jesus really that good? You see, John, the author, is contrasting Nicodemus in chapter 3 and the woman at the well in chapter 4. It's a very clear contrast in these two chapters. Listen to Don Carson. Nicodemus was powerful, respected, orthodox, theologically trained. She was unschooled, without influence, despised, believed in folk religion. He was a man, a Jew, a ruler. She was a woman, a Samaritan, a moral outcast, and both needed Jesus. Amen? Both needed Jesus. Verse 19, Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a great prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. She changes the topic. She's like, hey, can we move from my husband to something else? Is there any way we can get to something a little more comfortable? I came here at noon today to avoid this conversation. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain where we built the temple. You claim it's in Jerusalem. Which is it? 
woman, Jesus replies. Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, it's now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. She tries to change the subject matter because the point of pain is hard. She's like, where do we worship? And Jesus says it's not about where. It's about who and how. It's not about where, because you can worship God anywhere. Notice three times he talks about the Father. In verse 21, you will worship the Father. In verse 23, we will worship the Father. In verse 23 later on, the kind of worship verse the Father seeks. This would have been foreign to her. Who can call God Father? What kind of intimacy does this man have with God? She referred to Jacob as father. He refers to God as father. And three times he emphasizes that so that she knows who the father really is. He's the one we worship. We worship God. Triune, father, son, and spirit. God the father, God the son, God the spirit. We worship a triune God. And we can call him father. Dad. That's the type of relationship we get to have with God. How? In spirit and truth. Jesus says, though salvation is coming from the Jews, he's the Messiah. He's the promised one. The one for whom the whole Jewish community looked through the Old Testament. The messianic promise after messianic promise that one day Messiah would come. And he's born, born of the Jews. Salvation for all. Salvation is coming from the Jews, from the Jews to the world. Jesus says a time is coming, and in fact, it's right here. And you will worship in spirit and truth. God's spirit will connect with your spirit so that you can worship him. You've experienced that in life, haven't you? You're reading the word at some point in time. You're in a prayer time. You're here gathered for corporate worship. You're listening to some podcast or a worship CD, MP3. I mean, what are CDs now? Date myself. Good thing I didn't say cassette. Um, I do remember those and Walkmans. I'll stop now. And you're listening to it, and all of a sudden, God's spirit connects to your spirit. And in that moment, as you're reading the Bible, as you're praying, as you're listening to this worship music, you're just like, God is with me. He's right here. He's encouraging you. He's lifting you up. And in truth, because God is truth, he's going to reveal to us who he is, who we are, how we relate to him. The woman says, verse 25, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declares, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. In that moment, he reveals himself to, the, to her. In that moment, he tells her who he is. He lets her know that the reason he can offer her living water is because he's the one who's created her. He's the Messiah come down. He's the Christ, the one that everyone is waiting for. He is our hope. Tim Keller says this, the gospel is this. 
We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. You see, on my very best day, on Dwayne Klein's very best day in my own strength, I could never enter into God's presence. And on my very worst day, I am not beyond his grip of grace. Is that not good news? It's not about us, it's about him. It's not about my goodness, it's about his goodness. It's not about what I bring, it's about what he's brought. It's not about what I can do, it's about what he's done. And in Christ, we can be saved. Verse 27, then the disciples returned, they're surprised. They find him talking with a woman, but no one asks, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the reason she came, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man. He's told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. You see, in those days, it was seen as a waste of time for a rabbi to be discussing anything religious with a woman because they were uneducated. It was seen as a waste of time. And Jesus lets us know right here in this text that he does not see women as a waste of time. He sees them as precious creatures because he's created them, whom he longs to be in relationship with. And so he spends time with her to show us the value he has in women. But the disciples don't get it. She leaves her water jar behind the very purpose she came. And the very people she hid from, she's now calling out. She's become the evangelist. Jesus turns the most unlikely Samaritan into the person who's going back into town to say to everyone, come out, come out. The very people she was afraid to be near, those that she wanted to avoid, she's now beckoning out, come out with me, come out with me. I've met a man. He knows everything I've done. Could this really be the Messiah? Come and see this Jesus whom I have met. That should be our story. So many of us are so absorbed talking about sports or business or life, work or school. What should flow from our lips most naturally is Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Christ. I know it's not always easy. I've been taking credentialing courses and facilitation to learn how to facilitate better. That means you listen more and talk less. That's a trial. And so I've been taking these courses on it in Toronto, and I've loved it. And one day, in one of the courses, I'm the only believer in the course, they start and they, and they say, what's your purpose? I'm like, huh, what's your purpose? I'm first up. What's your purpose? And I just say two words, Jesus Christ. And the whole room is just stunned, like literally. And the guy says, what do you mean by that? I'm like, Lord, that is an open door. Thank you. And I just share the gospel. What do I mean that Jesus Christ is my purpose? And he says, I've never heard anything like that. That doesn't make me a hero. He is my purpose. Why would I say something else? That was the question. What's my purpose? And so I just, I mean, I want to be credentialed with this organization. And I just thought, well, Lord, here goes my credentialing. And then that day at lunch, we sat around and one of the men said, I still don't understand what you meant. And we all sat around at lunch talking about the gospel. 
and people's misconceptions and what they thought and what they didn't think and what it looks like because he is our purpose. He is our purpose. Well, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you, could not, that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to him, could someone have brought him food? Like, hey, Jesus, who brought you the snack? My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's four months till harvest? I tell you, open your eyes, look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life. So the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, the one sows and another reaps. It's true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. So the disciples come back with lunch. They're like, Jesus, aren't you hungry? He's like, no, I'm, I'm satisfied. They're like, how? Did someone give you something to eat? He's like, I, in my food, he says, what nourishes me is doing the will of the Father, the one who sent me, and finishing his work. They're like, what? And they don't get it. She got it. That woman at the well got it right away. Where the disciples aren't rushing around telling anybody about Jesus for fear they might die, she goes to the very people she's afraid of to tell them she's found life in him. Now after Pentecost, these disciples will no longer be afraid. And they will be willing to die for their faith by horrendous means to share the gospel with anyone who would hear. I believe right now in North America we have the greatest evangelistic moment in our history ever. That might surprise you. But the darker it gets, the brighter the light of Christ will shine. And I mean that. This young generation, Gen Z, Alpha's the next one. That would be our twins. Gen Z, this young generation, they champion justice. They champion the environment. They champion belonging. They're things that they say are critical to them. They are things that they need. Do you know our God is the God of justice? He is the, justice was his idea. It's part of his character and nature. Do you know that he created all things that no one cares more about the planet than he does? He made it. And do you know that he loves for you to belong? For you to be part? I, I jumped onto LinkedIn recently because of what I'm doing now, and this week I got a message. Jesus added you to LinkedIn. I'm like, what? And then I looked it up, and many of you know him, Jesus Bondo, who came to faith in Christ here at West Highland, was baptized by John, and John Mahaffey loved to say, John baptized Jesus again. <laughs> Never got old for John. Um, won't say about us. And, and, uh, and, and I looked it up, and there's Jesus Bondo. Added me to LinkedIn. Can I, can I tell you something? What Jesus Christ does is he adds us to his family. Not just a social profile. We're grafted right into the family of God. You want to talk about belonging? There's no greater place to belong than that. Well, many of the Samaritans, verse 39, from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay. And he stayed two more days. And because of his words, many became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. 
We now believe because we've heard for ourselves, we know this man really is the savior of the world. So Caleb, John's son, was in a dark place. And uh, John, his dad, recommended he go see Alf Davis. Some of you know Alf. He was here in June. So he went to see Alf because he needed someone with psychological help. And in that first meeting, Caleb's meeting with him, God saves Caleb. God just grips his heart. Calls his dad. Then he calls me. He's explained to me what God had just done. And I'm thinking, so I have spent hours and hours and hours of with you. I have listened to 50 minutes of a sock puppet taking over the world, and then 70 minutes of some other thing, recognizing that a cheeseburger is not the meaning of life because it's a vegetarian. And I have explained the gospel to you in and out so many times. And in one meeting, you're like, oh, this makes sense. And you give your life to Christ. Like, what's going on, young man? I'm kidding. I celebrated with him what God had done in his life. Because sometimes one will sow and another will reap. And God gripped his heart and changed his life. He began to devour the Bible. He married a godly young woman. They now, you know, they now have a daughter and loves her deeply, walking with the Lord deeply and has never turned back from that moment of God saving him. Alonzo's sister looked at him and said, I'm hoping no one at church makes you feel bad. But I tell you this, God... God will only help you out of this mess. He went to church with her. And shortly after, God saved him as he heard the gospel proclaimed for the first time. And now he's an apologist in Canada that shares the gospel all around our country and the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, we have young people all around us today who cancel people out. They think that their power is in canceling out something they don't like. But I'll tell you this, their greatest fear, their greatest fear is being canceled themselves. They fear missing out. They're, they fear their friends not inviting them. They fear their mom and dad just walking away from them. Their greatest fear is being canceled. There is a gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is for the religious man who thought he didn't need God and the irreligious woman who thought she was beyond the grip of grace. There is a gospel of Jesus Christ that when you turn to him from whatever it is you've trusted, when you turn to him from whatever it is you've believed in, he adopts you and grafts you into his family and he'll never cancel you out. Is that not great news? God will never cancel you out when you're a son or daughter of his because the accomplished work of Christ, his shed blood on the cross is enough to cover all, all, all of your sin. Amen? All of your sin. It is the good news of the gospel that the Father welcomes us into his family through the accomplished work of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're adopted in. And he satisfies because he offers living water. Listen to this quote. C.S. Lewis, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for these desires exists. A baby feels hunger while there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim while there's such a thing as water. A man feels sexual desire, there's such a thing as sex. If I can find in myself a desire which no explanation in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Is that not a great quote? Made for another world. Because only Jesus can satisfy our souls. 
you are not beyond the grip of grace. If you're sitting here today, you came here with a friend or family member, and you feel like you're beyond the grip of grace, that your sin is too great, that you've done too much, it is not true. No one is beyond the grip of grace. This is also important. The person you've written off, as a Christian, you've written someone off, they're not beyond the grip of grace. That family member, that friend, that colleague, that annoying neighbor, they're not beyond the grip of grace. They're not. God can save anyone. I don't know who you wrote on Who's Your One last week. There's more of these this week. Maybe last week you wrote down the name of someone who's religious. And you began to pray for them and follow this on the back. But maybe this week you need to write a second name and you can write who's your two, but don't, don't, don't. It looks really nice. You don't have to write two. And you write the name of someone that you know believes they're beyond, they, they believe they're beyond the grip of God's grace. And you begin to pray them into the kingdom of God. And then the Father wants us to worship him in spirit and truth. He wants us to connect with him so intimately that we know we've been grafted in to the family of God. Hear this poem as I close. I know I read it here 20 years ago. Most of you will not remember. "'Twas battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it hardly worth his while to waste his time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. "'What am I bid, good people?' he cried, "'and who starts the bidding for me? "'A dollar, a dollar, did I hear two? Two dollars, who'll make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going for three. But no, far from the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow, then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the strings. He played a melody pure and sweet, as sweet as an angel sings. Well, the music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, what am I bid for the old violin? And he held it aloft with its bow. A thousand dollars, do I hear two? Two thousand, who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, and going and gone, said he. Well, the audience cheered, but some of them cried, we don't understand. What changed its worth came the swift reply was the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune and battered and bruised with sin is auctioned cheap to a thoughtless crowd much like the old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. And he's going once, and he's going twice, and he's going, and he's almost gone. But then Jesus comes. And the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul or the change that's brought by the touch of the master's hand. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, we are so thankful for your salvation in our lives. We're thankful that you came for men like Nicodemus and for women like Nicodemus who thought they were good and aren't because only you are good. And we thank you that you came for men and women like this woman at the well to save those who believe they are beyond the grip of grace. Lord Jesus, today, if anyone is here believing that they are beyond the grip of grace, may your spirit work in them so powerfully that you would show them that you love them, and today would you save them. And Lord Jesus, for each of us here, may there be someone you bring to mind 
who we know believes that they are unsavable. And would you cause us to write their name down and begin to pray for them, knowing that you can save anyone. So for this glorious gospel and the hope we have in you, Lord Jesus, who offers living water, we say thank you. And amen. Listen to this from Ephesians 2 as our benediction. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in all of those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time. We gratified the cravings of our flesh. We followed its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of God's great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you are saved. And God raised us up with Christ. He seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he would show the incomparable riches of his grace that had been expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It is by grace you are saved through faith. It is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not by works so that no one can boast. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great day in the Lord.